We want to welcome everyone to this week's ICEJ weekly webinar. We have an exciting topic. It's Thursday, 4 p.m. Jerusalem, and uh, we're going to talk uh, about developments over the past week or so of Israel to the rescue, uh, uh, the IDF and other Israeli uh, rescue, humanitarian first responder organizations sending missions to Turkey after the devastating earthquakes there to try and dig people from the rubble. And then the question is, you know, how did this develop where Israel is always first on the scene? Even President uh, um, Erdogan in Turkey, who hasn't had the you know, best attitude towards Israel for about a decade. Uh, even he acknowledged that Israel was first there, even before a lot of uh, Turkish rescue workers uh, in some of these mountainous areas where the earthquake really hit hard. And uh, the developments uh, over uh, this past week or so and, and bring us right up to date. My first guest to talk about this is Marco Moreno. He's was a, he's a lieutenant colonel reserve in the IDF. Was part of uh, the Israeli uh, intelligence. Uh, we can't speak so much about that, uh, but um, uh, he also pioneered. He uh, organized and managed for four years one of these humanitarian relief efforts outside of Israel's borders. It happened to be just across the the uh, border of the Golan with Syria during the Syrian civil wars, four years of uh, start launching and managing um, the Operation Good Neighbor. And even some of our staff, uh, they were part of that operating sure. in underground uh, uh, clinics, makeshift clinics in basements with bombs going off everywhere. But you had to work with the IDF, with Israeli medical teams, with Christian volunteers and others to, to bring humanitarian relief and medical services in parts of southern Syria, even with the fighting going on around. That was quite an accomplishment. Yeah, but just to be accurate, the only one that crossed the Israeli border into Syria as the medical teams were Christians. Christians. The IDF would leave stuff at the border, like food, baby diapers, baby food, other, and, and people on the other side that you were coordinating with, probably a lot of them Druze connections with the Druze village coming and getting it and, and you know, made sure it was uh, safe to do that. First of all, when we started the operation, we decided as a policy that standoff, everything is standoff non-Israeli soldier mm -hmm. across the border inside Syria. Second, um, it will be on a humanitarian field mm -hmm. and we will provide them whatever they need. And it was under like a strategic security umbrella. We won't talk about that today. Our relationship with the Druze, as you mentioned, <clears throat> the Druze in Syria are with the regime against the opposition. Mm -hmm. So we wanted relationship with the Druze, but they were afraid of uh, the regime react to that. Mm -hmm. so, but we have other locals that helped us uh, coordinate and help themselves actually mm -hmm. coordinate the Syrian aid that we gave. 
Yeah. Now, uh, when it comes to these uh, missions on, on foreign fields, I, I think it goes back. To, I remember the first sort of big time that it, it hit the media was the, the first big earthquake in Turkey, I believe in 1999, mm -hmm. where the IDF Home Front Command sent search and rescue units to Turkey to dig out people from rubble and, and they were saving lives and it made big news. And I don't know if it was going on before that, but since then it's really developed. You had the Haiti earthquake around 2010, mm -hmm. I believe, uh, a big earthquake in Nepal uh, that, that uh, a lot of Israeli rescuers, uh, relief organizations went there. There was a big typhoon in the Philippines, even in the U.S. This uh, Miami. Yeah, and then near Miami, along the, the Atlantic coast, the Surfside uh, residential building collapsed and, and Israelis went there to help dig people out and now uh your operation good neighbors and was another good example what is it in israelis that says we got to go first we got to be there on the scene and and sort of project our goodwill in this way it's a good question i haven't thought about it yeah. there is a difference between the syrian project and the, the earthquakes that you just described it's something else but it's a good question why Israelis are, uh, first thing, are being invited mm -hmm. by those governments to come and help. Think about the U.S. Mm -hmm. West, okay. It's not the third world party, the mm -hmm. country. It's our state. I think Israelis has two or three things that are unique. Um, One, our brand is that we are very, very professional in rescue. You have a good army. Your experiences have forced yeah. you to get very good at this. Because we are a very experienced army. Yeah. Not because we are a better army. Mm -hmm. Because we are a better, we have just a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. like for instance, we have the airplane F-35, which is an American airplane. Latest generation Latest stealth generation. fighter bomber. Yeah. And actually, the only the Israeli Air Force is the one that has experience with this airplane. Because it's first one to use it, uh, use it in battle, in battle. So, successfully. So I hope and continue to be successful. And uh, so we, uh, our brand, that we are very experienced and we have good uh, reputation. But second, I think Israelis, we like to engage. Mm -hmm. Like when Israeli comes to the side, not talks, let's fight, mm -hmm. and that's that's the DNA of Israelis. Mm -hmm. Like. You know, they don't come and, okay, let's have coffee, mm -hmm. let's eat, eat something. No, just uh, the, the rescue team, uh, the rescue delegation that went to Turkey, upon their landing, mm -hmm. by the way, they land and Iranian airplane was next to them. It was, a, yeah, it was an yeah. interesting moment. Yeah, uh, just bringing aid, not the personnel, but, and they immediately uh, went into the field Mm -hmm. and start uh, rescuing uh, people. By the way, the Israeli delegation rescued 19. 19 that, like they broke the record, mm. 19. But it is, it's 19 people, 19 souls you say. Yes. It's 19, a whole world for someone. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the second thing. Um, the third thing is, uh, Israelis, we like to help. 
Like, I think because, you know, I think it's something in our historical DNA. The Jews, before we had the country, were very weak. Mm. Like, we got butchered in the Holocaust. Mm. And the events you know, uh, during the history. And now we have a country, which is a powerful country. Mm -hmm. So we like to be in the power side and help those who need that. So I think those three three things are why Israel is our. Uh, You've seen the suffering. You want to go do something. We want to help. Yeah. We just want to help. We have the capability. We have the experience. We have everything you need, and just want to go and help. And there's also this Jewish concept of tikkun olam to go and. True, true, but I don't know. Honestly, if that's the main thing, I don't mm -hmm. know when the army is getting a, a call or, or when <laughs> army guys seeing in the news that the earthquake happened mm -hmm. and all the forces that when they took it, 99 or 80% are reserved. Mm -hmm. So, ah, we are Tikkun Olam, let's go. It's something mm -hmm. else because not everybody is religious. Mm -hmm. I hope that uh, relations are on the men between Israel and, and Turkey. Uh, over the past year or so that uh, there's been a sort of a shift, especially on Erdogan's side, but, uh, um, you know, it was helpful that they allowed Israel in. And it might not have been the case a couple of years ago. Probably. First of all, Turkey is shifting the, toward warming the relationship with Israel. You know why? Mm -hmm. Because of the gas. The gas natural gas offshore. Yeah. They yeah, want to get the, in on the deal. The reason that the, the Israeli ambassador was but it's only because we found gas. Mm -hmm. Politics, but we don't mm -hmm. care about politics. Mm -hmm. That's it. Second, I heard from the army the guys, delegation that went to Turkey, they said they've been asked to take out the patch. They have a patch here, you know, with the flag. It's a real flag, yeah. Just take it out because maybe it's sensitive mm -hmm. with the, you know, the locals. Then, but after 24 hours, once the local realized what the Israeli delegation is doing, like, actually mm -hmm. working and saving people on the ground mm -hmm. so flags will be all over even i heard one of us spoke someone and said you know locals that got food like a refugee and a truck came and gave them food he took half of his food and he gave it to us mm -hmm. like offer it to us mm -hmm. he didn't take like the amount of like respect they got after so, and I think that's the story of Israel. Mm -hmm. It's a perspective, it's a narrative. Ooh, those guys, blah, blah, blah. But once you get to know them on the ground, so those guys are. Yeah, yeah, we're hearing these stories that trust you Israelis more than our own, uh, our own troops, our own uh, officials. What I'm hearing from Turkey, it's a catastrophe. It's, it's just a chaos. Like the local authorities are non-functional at all mm. like you can come you can get or come close to the area of the earthquake without a problem no one close it mm. there isn't a, like a central command that distribute the it, this it's way chaos said, chaos like local chaos i'm not talking mm. about civilian I'm talking about the government mm. okay okay we got israeli okay Israeli, you go there americans you go there and uh, french you go there mm. everybody's doing whatever he wants Mm -hmm. No, the Israelis, I heard them say, we didn't have any 
engage with the locals mm. to say, okay, you go, you go over here or there. It's another local, local authorities. Uh, yeah, non functional sure in shock themselves from, from this. Okay, shock with family them, members. And, with, okay, but with all the, where's the army? Mm. Where's the police? Mm. It's a crisis. Someone needs to manage it. They're, right. they're, they're threatening to invade know, Syria. I, I, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. Turkey. It's like it's Turkey. Turkey. It's yeah. Yeah, think about it. They rule the world. Yeah. Yeah. And they, this is also tough terrain, mountainous terrain. Uh, you know, this um, after five days, the IDF search and rescue teams, United Hatzalah, who we've been helping sponsor and, and other groups, they pulled out. They, there's a, a phase where you're doing search and rescue when you think people might be alive. Mm -hmm. I think they just pulled another uh, nine out even today, a week after it mm -hmm. happened, uh, 10 days mm -hmm. after it happened almost. That's amazing, but- yeah, uh, Miracle. Uh, but uh, the rest, search and rescue is pretty done because it's like seven days now. Oh, temperatures. No, no one can survive that. Yeah. And now the Israeli president is only the medical staff, mm -hmm. medical uh, doctors, nurses, which are working in another version, meaning they are assisting the locals in their hospital mm -hmm. because they have a problem with personnel. Mm -hmm. So it's coming to a certain hospital. Okay, we have surgery. What do you need other guy? Just coming and help. But the, the idea of Humphrey uh, Command has a, a, a military field. Hospital. Yeah, which is not very. Some tents. And... Yeah, it's it's small and it doesn't have all the medical. For instance, mm -hmm. if it's a head injury, it cannot. Limited. They, they set up one in, in, in Ukraine last year over near the border with Poland and people flocked to it. And a lot of the Ukrainian Jewish community was taken there, but everyone was going there for treatment. But the, the, the IDF has this at the ready at all times, not only in case something happens within the nation, but I know they went and set up in Haiti. And yeah. uh, even the, the media was drawn there because they were only ones with an internet connection so they could file the reports, became very popular. Basically, this uh, capability is for the Army when he. That's in that scale. Mm. Yeah. But uh, praying, yeah. Yeah, we should pray, but probably it will happen, you know, yeah. because every 100 years you have a recycle. Of, uh, We're kind of on the same fault line. Yeah, the, uh, yeah I live in the north. I, 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 the bed was shaking. Like, you felt oh, it. Wow, I, was, I woke up and it was a lot of The seconds to understand it's an earthquake. Uh -huh. uh, but it was done after like half. Knife meant what they felt. Mm -hmm. uh, and last time it happened in Israel, as you remember, it uh, was totally destroyed almost 100 years ago. I don't know. We should wait and see what will happen if we have good buildings or bad. We know we have bad buildings mm -hmm. in Israel that are, are old buildings, probably the same that as we sit here now. No, this building we talked to our. Our landlord, and uh, he said it was built. They pulled the permit after 1995, so it's built to earthquake. Code. Okay, let's hope it's not a crook. And it's, uh, <laughs> you should bring an engineer. There's some exam, but yeah. it's always you, know, you yeah. cannot run from an earthquake. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I think this is a new uh, burgeoning field, uh, earthquake, uh, you know. Look, uh, you have the, the phase of search and rescue, and then when you, you just make an assessment, a lot of it's hard to find anyone else still alive down there. from it, they didn't think it had survived, and all of a sudden it starts coughing and crying, and there's video on that, it's quite amazing. There was a story also about two sisters that uh, someone heard uh, in a building the Israeli came and said there was someone here, and there is a protocol when the officer is meaning everybody quiet. Mm -hmm. So the Turks learned the word, because Israel has a shouting, shake it, quiet in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. So the Turks learned the shake it, meaning okay, everybody's, and then they heard something, and they worked like for almost 24 hours, drilling mm -hmm. down, drilling down, mm -hmm. drilling down. The two sisters were on the seventh floor and came to the first floor. So Collapse. imagine seven floors, uh, they went under the bed found a, a and, that, and that saved, saved them. And they stayed three days under the bed until the, uh, the rescue uh, reached them. Three, mm. uh, three days under the bed without any food and water. Of course, any food and water, without any uh, uh, possibility to move even. Wow. A little bit air. And, they say, and the, those two girls, by the way, told them, listen, there's another one, like mm. a father and a daughter. So it was, mm. I heard the officer that they said, it, it's a miracle. It's, mm. Uh, mm. I think uh, our audience back home to understand it. It can be also very traumatic for the rescue team. Mm -hmm. Think about it. All of the rescue team, or the majority of them, are reserved. Mm -hmm. It's a lawyer. It's an accountant. Yeah. It's someone. They started uh, their lives. They have family and yeah, children. Yeah, and so. they just get called in the morning. Oh, guys, put your uniform on. Uh -huh. Come to the airplane. We fly. Mm -hmm. And they see. Um, so they have a protocol in the rescue and this delegation. Every evening they're doing a session, like a round session, and they're talking about it. Mm -hmm. And they have psychological sort of therapy. Yeah, sort of therapy to process it and ventilize uh, it because it's, you know, it's trauma. People can go back home and, you know, when you see that. What, we, we, when we see the news, we start to cry. Think if you be there. This is the downside of all the experience Israel has. You know, yeah. Crazy. Um, the search and rescue, uh, you know, you assessing really probably not many uh, alive and we won't find any more people trapped alive. But uh, it was like after five days, most of the Israeli search and rescue pulled out. And some of the media reports said, look, uh, they linked it to threats from maybe ISIS or other local militias. But there was also a real anger and frustration among uh, the local communities that, uh, against their government because they weren't acting. It was chaos. They weren't doing enough. The Israelis were doing better. And I mean, I've heard that they were even trying to force um, these Israeli rescue workers. You got to come and dig in my building because my wife's in there, my daughter. And, and really that because the authorities are not controlling the situation. Yeah. Now, the Israeli delegation, it came back not because of threat, it's all fake news, mm -hmm. and back because they don't have nothing to do. It's you done. think? It says they said it's done. It's done. Yeah.
Uh, they found some other people in some other areas, but it was other rescue teams that arrived later, yeah. and there was some. And by that, but there is like almost about 100, 150 personnel, medical people that still are. Yeah, yeah. And that, they will last and, for a and The search and rescue phase ends, then you turn to medical treating all the yeah. people who have been wounded and the humanitarian aid relief, which the UN. By the way, that's the, that's the most important people yeah. are. Homes, which we're, we're still involved in some of yeah. that. I understand the, the small Jewish community in one of these mountain villages that uh, had been yeah, destroyed, 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 synagogue destroyed, yeah. and we're Jaffe, Jewish. Now agency, it's the you know, time for an uh, organization like you guys board and have yeah. those poor people because now it's the now 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 it begins mm -hmm. all the all the problematic. Mm -hmm. Big chaos has ended. Now people need to eat, mm. sleep, yeah. cry. I don't know how to say recover their life. Mm. How can you recover from that? But as we know, you can. Mm. You need help. Yeah. But it takes a sort of a special kind of person to just go at a moment's notice and, and go and try and save lives. I know the 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 Christian medical teams that you helped organize to go across the border in Syria, they had to have uh, a special courage to go in there. More than a special courage. First of all, it was 95% girl, which I was shocked about. Really? It was yeah. all nurses and, all, and all female. All female doctors, doctors and nurses. Uh, nurses, whatever. Volunteers. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The mess, and it was only female, not only but 90 95 percent. That the mm. second that was shocking for me as an experience, I mean, it was they were young, mm. like me, one, uh -huh. I without any military background, mm. without any military prep. No, no idea what they were stepping into, really. With the small backpack on their back with short ladies mm. and walking in the night through the border and having to a uh, horrific places, mm -hmm. like the most dangerous places on earth that time, mm -hmm. was amazing. Okay. So for the ladies here, <laughs> good job. <laughs> you know Syria well. There was a... Um, uh, large part of Syria in the north that was impacted by this earthquake. There's similar problems, humanitarian disaster. Much more than Turkey. Much more. How, how's it going to play out in Syria? I think they... The civil war has already devastated the country. Civil war is already devastated. It's a Sunni area, meaning Bashar al-Assad. The, the regime, in any case, is not in control. He's not, he's not in control. He doesn't care. Has any capability to so you have to go into Turkey and to yeah. get in there in Turkey. Yes, yeah. you gotta go through. and if if you think Turkey is chaotic and you know Balagan, as we said, think what's going on in Syria. Uh, like ten times more. Mm -hmm. Ten times more. Mm -hmm. So you don't think uh, your sources uh, and IDF and all there was really no credible like from an Islamist militia. Or maybe some of these gangs who control certain areas near the border that 
there's been this conflict and and uh, it's spilled over some into Turkey. None of that. The, the Israeli rescue uh, workers weren't threatened by no, them. No, they went with uh, good security detail. And, you know, but there was a lot of uh, anger and frustration by the locals against Turkish government yeah. and Turkish authorities for yeah. not really doing yeah. more and getting a handle on the situation. Yeah. Okay. We want to thank uh, Marco Moreno. We've My pleasure. Talking to him. He is our um, the former lieutenant colonel in the IDF, uh, in the reserves now, and an intelligence officer. And he uh, pioneered, he launched and oversaw Operation Good Neighbor from 2012 through around 2016, where uh, the IDF and Israeli authorities cooperated to get humanitarian aid into parts of southern Syria during the Syrian Civil War, and also to help organize uh, teams of medical uh, um, doctors and nurses and such. He said most of them were women to get into there. So he's a real veteran of some of these humanitarian missions. And uh, we thank you for your time. And we're going to be right back in just a moment with my next guest, Rafael Pak of United Hatzalah. You can help Turkey today. Join the earthquake relief efforts with the ICEJ and Israel's top responders. Go to donate.icej.org and choose International Relief Fund from the drop-down to designate your gift to Turkey. Welcome back to the ICJ Weekly Webinar. I'm David Parsons, the, uh, one of the Vice Presidents and Senior Spokesmen for the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem. And this week, we're talking about Israel to the rescue. The news reports over recent days how uh, Israel sent search and rescue teams, medical teams, to Turkey to help with all the victims uh, of the uh, very horrible earthquakes. There were several major earthquakes early last week, and Israel was first on the scene. There's a whole history of this. And our guest on this part of the program is Rafael Pock. He's the international spokesman for United Hatzalah. Good to have you, Rafael. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, we're talking to him, first of all, because they had a whole medical team and search and rescue team uh, there in Turkey pulling people from the rubble, babies, little girls, uh, old uh, grandparents, everyone. It was quite dramatic, quite touching and, and humane. But uh, I think we first want to explain a little about who United Hatzalah is. And uh, for those who don't know, they're uh, like the first responders, paramedics, EMTs, that they're, they, uh, all over Israel, they, uh, there's they have over 6,000 volunteers, and a lot of them have these mopeds. They're, they're, they're like an ambulance, uh, uh, a little uh, motorcycle ambulance with medical kit on it. And they are the first to arrive on the scene of any accident or any terror attack. I've experienced myself. My wife needed, uh, we had to call emergency on a Shabbat, and within five minutes, 
uh, United Hatzalah was there about 20 minutes before Magan David Adam and, and no police, no one else. They were there first. They're always the first to sign. It's average of like three minutes. So this is like globally, you are the fastest first responders there are. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm sorry it took five minutes to get to, to your wife. Usually, like you said, we're usually in three minutes and in cities like Jerusalem, we're even usually a little bit faster than that. It was Shabbat. We understand. <laughs> even on Shabbat, it doesn't matter. We're, we're active, uh, you know, week, full, full week around 24 seven, 365 days a year. Uh, so, um, but yeah, usually, uh, we're the first on scene. Um, I myself drive, uh, one of our ambi cycles. Uh, it's a couple we call the motorcycle where it has the medical equipment because it's ambu for the ambulance and then cycle for the motorcycle put them together. Yeah. Uh, awesome. And we have uh, we have sixty five hundred volunteers around the country. We we've kind of essentially created a flash mob of life saving mm-hmm. where when an emergency happens, uh, we alert the five or ten closest responders. Uh, we also put that on a radio channel so the people who are a little further away but might be already driving or already riding the motors and cycles would be able to get there maybe even faster than someone who's located closer but would have to go down to get their car or get their medical equipment from their car and then run over uh sometimes even people a little further away might get it so we have two kind of stages of notification there's an app that goes out uh, based on gps location uh kind of like uber um and whoever picks it up first goes um so the first of the five first people who pick it up go uh, and then there's also people who get the radio channel and a little further away can get there faster if they're in a, an anticycle or a bike or a car or whatever happens to be. Uh, we go and we, we get there, we treat the patient. We have the first responders of all the medical equipment that's uh, on an ambulance itself. Uh, obviously not the bed or the stretcher because those don't fit on a motorcycle or, or in a person's personal car. Uh, but we, uh, we get there, we treat the patient, try and stabilize them when the ambulance comes. We help them transport the patient to the ambulance and they take them to the hospital for the next level of care. Uh, the system works very well. was developed uh, back in the 80s here in Israel, a little bit before that, even in the States with different uh, groups. And it's, it, it is, it's a community-based first response because no no organization, no government in the world can put an ambulance on every street corner. It's not effective. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, a good use of resources. But what we can do is we can train a volunteer and get the medical supplies and have them uh, be on every street corner uh, around the world, around the country, maybe even around the world. Um, sometimes even more than one. I know in the, in the place that I live, in the town that I live in, Efrat, uh, which is just south of Jerusalem, uh, on my street, I think we, we have a street, it's, a, it's apartment buildings. And I think in every building, there's at least one volunteer, more yeah. or less, on the street. I think there's one that doesn't have there's about mm-hmm. 15 buildings on our street, and every single one of them has a volunteer in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really to that level, and it's it's empowering the community, engaging the community to be the first responders until the government system or the local regional system, whatever it happens to be, the, the regular ambulance service can show up. It takes, uh, even even good systems, takes about uh, you know seven to ten minutes. Fast ones, slower ones obviously take a lot more. Um, and until the ambulance can get there, there's already someone treating the patient, stabilizing them, you know, helping the person performing the high whenever it's choking, giving them aspirin if it's a cardiac arrest or uh, any other interventions that's able to be happening in the first level in the first few minutes, uh, in order to begin CPR if it's the case, attach a defibrillator, uh, and help uh, help save the person's life until the ambulance can arrive. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the main goal of the organization. 
because we're from the community, we've also seen other needs and other elements. And one of the uh, the ethos of the kind of the organization is that we, if we see a need, we try and fill it. Uh, so we saw the need that ambulances were taking too long, so we provided this idea of the first responder coming before the ambulance. Uh, there were other things that we saw based on the community where we have elderly people living on their own who are not getting medical checkups on a regular basis, who aren't able to go to the doctor, uh, who don't have people coming to visit them. They feel lonely, they feel alone, a little bit abandoned by society. So we started a project called the, the uh, Giving Honor Project, uh, or Giving Respect, really, a better translation. Uh, and what we what we do is we send volunteers who are trained uh, to visit these elderly people all, once a week. It's every the volunteer kind of like adopts the elderly person and goes and visits that same person every week. Once a week, they build up a relationship, they build up a rapport. They go and uh, provide them with a free medical checkup, check their vital side to make sure their blood pressure is okay, their pulse, oxygen level, make sure they're eating well, make sure they're taken care of. If they look around the apartment to see if there's any. Uh, or house to see if there's anything broken and anything needs fixing. And they spend at least an hour a week with them to alleviate their sense of loneliness and and, and so they can they can feel part of society, feel a connection to their community. Um, and it's something we saw from unfortunately a lot of cases where elderly people passed away and no one knew about the fact that they passed away until they started smelling the neighbors started smelling the dead body there. Um, and we realized this was a problem around Israel, so we started to develop this program and Thankfully, it's active now in more than 50 cities across the country. Mm, very good. We, we have something similar with an Israeli partner where we uh, it's a call center for Holocaust survivors. They do tend to right. get reclusive in their homes. But you can be very proud of United, Atzalah, Raphael. I know that uh, when we called, uh, you dial like, uh, I think 100 is police, 101 is emergency that you get the alert as well. The dispatcher sends it to Magan David, but you also get it, and you've got this system set up that and these volunteers are like... We have our own weather and on the And, and uh, your volunteers are like, they're teachers, they're doctors, they're lawyers or whatever, but they take medical training and are on call all the time to respond in their specific area. That's amazing. There's one, there's one fellow who has a, I mean, we have 6,500 volunteers, each does their own thing, uh, and they have their own professions, their own lives, and they put everything on hold when the emergency comes in, drop whatever they're doing, and go out to try and save somebody. Yeah, and uh, when they came to our house by uh, what they, the tests they gave to my wife, she had collapsed, and the tests they gave her were in her eyes doing this and this, when, uh, when the next, uh, you know, medical from, team from Magan David or uh, Adam arrived around 20 minutes later, they did the very same test. So you guys, it just yeah. showed me you're well-trained first responders, and it is a great service that you do for Israel, but you, you uh, have now extended this to other countries where you sent your, your top search and rescue guys, medical and all, to Turkey after this earthquake. When did, when did United Hatzalah get into foreign missions like this uh i think the first lot in iran died with a very small group was in 2010 uh the um haiti earthquake yeah um with uh first haiti earthquake we've been to a couple <laughs> the um that was the first time the organization was founded in 2006 and in 2010 we sent uh we sent a, a delegate a very small delegation i think it was two or three people uh to haiti 
uh, to sort of see how they could help. And they realized that the, at the time, there was a very immense project. They needed a lot, a lot of resources to help. So over the years, as the organization grew uh, and our resources grew, we started developing a kind of a system of different elements that would go to help in international rescues. Uh, one of them is the search and rescue unit, which we work together with uh, under the Israel Rescue Coalition. Uh, we work together in United Salah, works together with the Israel Rescue Unit um, uh, throughout Israel. And we, we develop, we do specialized training uh, to do search and rescue operations in harsh conditions. Uh, we often train in the desert here in Israel, uh, so more in the north in the wintertime when it's cold. Um, obviously, in mountainous areas where there's no access by roads and how do we get there. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, training in the search and rescue field. Uh, we also have urban search and rescue training where people go missing, have missing people. Uh, so we have a division or a unit that uh, specializes in that. We now have a Jeep unit, which also does difficult terrain rescues. And um, we also have, obviously, the medical side. Uh, the medical aspect is is broken down into two sections during uh, an international rescue mission. Uh, one side is the physical, uh, what we call the physical medicine. Uh, and that's treating people for injuries. Uh, in cases of Turkey, we had a lot of hypothermia. We had a lot of hand injuries because people kept trying to dig through the rubble with their bare hands to get to their loved ones. Uh, so a lot of injuries to hands, the limbs. Um, you know, the scenes that we saw there were people like the rubble was in piles, parts collapsing. So there were a lot of crush injuries where people fell off of or slipped off of the piles of rubble trying to get to their loved ones. Uh, so we had fall injuries, um, et cetera. And those, those were people who weren't trapped uh, in, in Turkey. But we have, there's a big need for a medical team to go uh, to these missions as well. But in addition to the, the physical, what we call the physical medical team, we also have the psychological team. Um, yes. And a few years back, we had um, uh, a woman who was one of our volunteers, and this goes back to the innovation aspect of the organization. A woman who was one of our volunteers happens to be a family therapist. That was her profession. She's a family therapist, but she's also an EMT. And she got hit by a car. A very light injury. The car managed to, to stop shortly after hitting her. wasn't very hard hit. And she got up and walked away. Uh, but the people who were around her, her neighbors, those who saw the, the car accident, they were traumatized by what they saw. Uh, suddenly they're walking you know, down the street that they left. When they get hit by a car and knocked over, it traumatized them a little bit. Um, and she noticed, and, and as a therapist, she was sensitive to that. She said, if people were traumatized witnessing an event that didn't even happen to them, how much more so would they be traumatized if they witness a medical emergency, whether it's a car accident, uh, you know, the, a terror attack, uh, or even just something as simple as you know, a child not waking up from their nap, which unfortunately happens also, or the death, the sudden death of a loved one, where it's something that does connect to them and it does hit home uh, in their family, in their home. They have a personal connection. They're a lot more traumatized by that psychologically and emotionally. Uh, and she realized at that point that we need to not only provide physical first aid, but also psychological first aid. Um, she then went to develop a plan with uh, a couple of experts in the field of psychological first aid uh, here in Israel, um, and what we call psychotrauma and resiliency. And that is a, is a field which is very important here in Israel because a lot of people in Israel suffer from uh, PTSD to the continuing conflict with the, uh, uh, the Palestinians. Um, back and forth, people living under threat of rocket attacks, people having witnessed terror attacks, even people having gone through regular military service can often be traumatized afterwards 
Um, there was a, st a statistic that about 80% of Israelis have PTSD of some sort or another. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if it's true or not, uh, but I've seen that. Um, and so traumatic medical emergencies, not just the medical first responders, but also the psychological first responders, uh, which is a specialized unit called the Psychotrauma Crisis Response Unit. That unit started in 2016 with 30 people, um, and we developed it uh, to today, it's now more than 500. Uh, these people are psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, social workers, uh, on the, what we call the advanced level responders. So I'm having doctors or paramedics and medical side. And we have the basic level responders, people who take, who are EMTs, but take extra training to become proficient in providing psychological first aid in the field. Um, and we have between the two of them, we have about 500 responders like this. So this team is pretty much always an element going to international rescue missions because when we send international rescue missions, it's for it's for a major disaster that people experience. You yeah. uh, often leaves trauma. Um, so since that the inception of that unit, that has been part of uh, all of our missions around the world. Um, they didn't get to Nepal. Nepal started. We we sent the missions to Nepal in twenty fifteen during their uh, earthquake. Um, and but since twenty sixteen, when we went to uh, hurricanes Harvey and Irma twenty seventeen. The Pittsburgh uh, synagogue shooting in 2018, uh, once again to 80, uh, and then uh, in 20, uh, you know, coming up with, uh, in, in 2020, we didn't send anyone anywhere because of Corona, but in 2021, uh, when Surfside, the Surfside building collapse took place, we set the team. Um, and then, of course, in, at the Florida. End, in Florida, yeah. And then, of course, with the Ukraine war, uh, we did something we never thought we would do. We, we ended up sending uh, a, a delegation like no other. Um, uh, we had tw 200 people, 200 volunteers going in and out of Ukraine in, in Moldova, in the border country, helping refugees during the refugee crisis the first two months of the war. Uh, they were basically cycling in and out back and forth to, from Israel to Moldova, uh, providing humanitarian aid psychological first aid to the refugees food clothing water shelter uh whatever we could help them with in moldova on the borders uh we did and then we turned around and we flew three thousand of them back to israel mm. uh, we ended up renting we started out with one one plane which we sent a team of 50 volunteers to moldova with with i don't know it, was, it must have been like 20 or 30 tons of supplies that were donated and the plane since it was going to moldova already it turned around and brought back refugees. Mm. Um, and we said, you know, this is this is a good way to go. We'll send a plane with volunteers and, and humanitarian aid and we'll bring back refugees. And we did that every two days uh, throughout the first two months of the war. So we ended up sending about 35 planes back and forth. And we brought 2,000 refugees to Israel from the war. Kovacabold. Very good. Uh, we want to we wanna talk about uh, Turkey, what you did there, sure. the Christian embassy started raising funds to partner with you because you had sent a a, a search and rescue mission there i think you also have some humanitarian aid and medical teams that are still going to be going so that appeal is is still ongoing we we partnered in the past uh um i think uh, uh the philippines typhoon we had a, a doctors association in haiti we partnered with zaka which collects body, body parts, but their first responders as well coming on the scenes of accidents have some training in this. We've partnered with some others 
Uh, we just had earlier in the program uh, Marco Moreno, who oversaw Operation Good Neighbor in Syria, Israeli yeah. sort of led humanitarian mission there, medical mission. But uh, this time we partnered with United Hatzalah. It's quite amazing what you've done in less than 20 years in building this organization and really being the model, the global model for first response. I really have to say that, Rafael. You should be you. proud of that. But um, what what happened in Turkey? What are uh, some of the stories of, of people rescued and the response from the locals? Okay, so Turkey... The earthquake happened at three o'clock in the morning Turkey time. I think it was four o'clock in the morning here too. I don't remember. They're an hour forward, so I think it's two o'clock in the morning here. Um, as soon as we heard about it, we basically uh, started making plans to have a, uh, a team head out. We had to figure out what exactly the team was going to look like in the middle of the night. Middle of the night. Middle of the night. I mean, we we operate twenty four seven. So uh, we woke up our vice president of operations, who was you know happily sleeping. Uh, that listen, we have we have the situation. We gotta go, uh, and uh, we went. We uh, we we basically took the the next day to prepare uh, volunteers, a list of who we were gonna send, and how how we were gonna send them because that was a challenge as well. Uh, and getting all the logistics in order, connecting with the Israel Foreign Office and Defense Ministry uh, in order to uh, coordinate efforts because we knew they were sending a team. Uh, through the IDF, Home Front Commands, and they sent a, a, quite a large team, they sent about 400 people, um, and we put our team together. Uh, we got a team of 10 search and rescue experts uh, from different search and rescue units across the country, everywhere from a lot to the Golan Heights. Um, people came. Uh, we contacted one of our volunteers because, like I said, we have 6,500 volunteers, all of which have their own professions. Uh, one of our volunteers is uh, a reserve major in the IDF Pumpfront Commands. He was not part of the IDF mission, uh, so we asked him to be part of our mission and run the team. Uh, he agreed. This is something he's, he's very familiar with doing in the, through his military service. Um, with the search and rescue team members, it was 10, uh, and then we had 15 members of the medical team. A uh, number of doctors, paramedics, EMTs. Uh, each one has, you know, kind of had to wear a second hat. Uh, because you have limited resources when you're on the ground at a rescue mission, you usually want to send people who have the most possible training. So each one had training in uh, digging op digging rescue operations, which we've done uh, in partnership with Humber Command. Uh, we have a special training program like that uh, where we use their tools. We work together with the engineers to go through the building, the, the I guess the destruction zone, and, and get through concrete, uh, cut through rebar, learning how to do that already before they've even got to this mission uh, so they walked in with that knowledge uh, a lot of them have men a lot of them were already members of the psychotrauma crisis response unit as well uh, we sent some psychologists uh, together with the doctors uh, to provide expert care there um, and a lot of them also have uh, special technical training uh, one of our one of the MPTs who went has a specialty running our drone system um, and the drones were actually very useful because uh, of their thermal imaging cameras. Uh, and through that, we were able to locate actually three people who were still alive. Um, just by sending the drone up here with the thermal cameras, we were able to pinpoint where exactly they were in the rubble uh, and get them out. That's so that amazing technology. Yeah, that was very essential as well. Um, and so each of them had like different ads and we, we selected, handpicked the team to go. Uh, they also had to be people who were okay roughing it because there was nothing in Turkey. 
the Turkish government set up a, a liaison for all of the different international rescue organizations. Uh, they were coordinating efforts of which organization was going where. They gave us a big field to sleep in, and we were on our own for everything else. Mm. Uh, so sub-zero temperatures, we brought sleeping bags, we brought uh, tents, and we set up camp. Uh, we actually set we set up camp right next to where the IDF set up camp, uh, so we could cut down on security resources between the two of us. And uh, we got to work. And within 20, I think it was 24 hours, we were already on the ground. Um, and we started working with the digging. Uh, over the next six days that we were there, we managed to rescue, uh, find, rescue, and extricate and treat uh, 15 survivors. Um, even going up to, to six days after the, uh, the earthquake itself, we still found one or two people alive. Um, and that was, that was immense. Um, now we're a few days even after that, we're, you know, 10 days out almost. Uh, and people, those that we've rescued are recovering in hospital and they've recovered enough. Uh, they've started sending us thank you videos, um, saying thank you to the rescuers for, for getting them out, for finding them. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the cases, it's very difficult because it's one thing to locate the person that's already its own difficulties. Then after you locate them, you have to get to them. So we worked hand in hand with the with the IDF Home Commands, with the Turkish Red Cross, uh, with the liaison, uh, government liaison, their their services, um, going through the rubble, finding them, getting to them, doing whatever it needed to do in terms of construction and digging to get to them, uh, using cranes, using bulldozers, jackhammers, whatever it happened to be, to cut through the rubble and finally get to them. But once we got to them, then we had to stop because. One of the bad things is when a person is, is caught in an earthquake, if they're in an air pocket where the building collapses around them and there's a pocket of air and they're not hit by anything, that's already a big miracle and they, they can manage to survive for a little bit. Um, after time goes by, sub-zero temperatures with no water, no food, uh, nothing to you know occupy them, it becomes much more difficult to survive. Uh, as time goes on, it becomes more and more difficult. But that's the good cases. The bad cases... Or when a person survives, but something does fall on them. And their arm is crushed, their leg is crushed, even their torso or their part of their skull. Uh, not to get too graphic or anything, but one of the big challenges is then, in those cases, how do we get them out? We have to lift up the thing that fell on them, that's pushing them, pinning them down. But just the action of lifting that up can actually kill them. Mm. Because that, that item that's fallen on them creates what's called a crush injury. Uh, and that's, uh, it cuts off blood circulation in certain areas. When you lift it up, the blood circulation flows. And if there's an open wound, uh, the blood can flow right out. Also, when something, when part of the body is crushed and it doesn't receive oxygen for a while, it can start building up an actual, uh, poison inside the body. And when you lift the beam up, that poison can then spread to the rest of the body. Um, so the first thing that the rescue units have to do when they get to the person is not just suddenly drag them out of the rubble. Um, it's actually get them to check, be checked out by a doctor at the scene to see if they're okay to be dragged out of the rubble because the, the, the simple action of dragging them out or lifting up that heavy object can be what kills them. Especially after being there for two, three, four, five, or six days uh, with no fluids. You're talking about people who have very little fluid left in their body uh, and you know suffering hypothermia. Um, so going through that, we had to make sure that the doctor checked them before we even touched them. Uh, so our doctors who work in hospitals, they have their own medical practices or clinics, had to crawl through the rubble the same way the rescue teams did 
uh, get to the patient, start treatment before we lifted up the heavy objects or drag them out, provide them with fluids, put on tourniquets, close up bandages, uh, sorry, close up wounds with bandages, and only then could we remove the person from the ring. risking their lives as well. Going into Absolutely. 100% risking their lives. Obviously, the engineers who are doing the digging were trying to do as much a, as good a job as they could to make sure that the risk was nominal. Um, but Nessus, they are definitely risking their own lives to, to go save others a, com- a couple of countries over. Um, so it's, uh, it was something that's, that's, uh, you know, kind of, kind of heroic, uh, from that standpoint. Um, now, like I said, but they, they did this 15 times. So over a six day period, that's about three people a day. Uh, it was, it was quite emotional for everybody. I think there were 19 people in a rescued by some of the different Israeli units and you were in involved in the United Hatzalah in 15 of those rescues. The IDF, uh, the IDF was kind of like the all-encompassing unit that all the Israeli ones kind of attached themselves to, because they were the biggest. Um, they rescued 19 total. Of those 19, four of them were rescued within the first day before we got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it worked fast, because <laughs> they got there in 12 hours, so their first team. And they started they started doing, you know, their operations, deploying people to test they could. Um, had their own small medical team as well. And then when we joined, we were a force multiplier for them, both in the rescue efforts and, of course, with the medical team. Yes. Our drone team. Um, so it's a very, very big force multiplier. We worked together. Those 15 others were, were done together in cooperation between us and them and the Turkish Red Cross. Do you know if some of the other, like, uh, Austria sent teams. I, I think I don't know what all countries. There were quite a few, but but there were no, yeah, there were these capabilities like these these drones that could see in the rubble. A lot of them do. Um, also, we have to remember that Turkey is is one of the world leaders of uh, when there's like in, in sending disaster teams to different countries. They're they're very very well equipped. They have a very robust team. The Red Cross of Turkey is incredibly effective. Um, the, the Red Crescent. Their teams are also there. Red Crescent, right? Sorry, Red Crescent. Um, so they're very effective in, and and have a lot of know-how and skill and technology. And we we learned a lot from them uh, as well in this thing. So they're they're no slouches for sure. Far from yeah. it. Um, were they well, on the scene? Were they really loud in other areas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah very much so. But the, uh, the the challenge was that the, the the devastation was so widespread over such a large area in Turkey. Um, that there was, even with, you know, all the equipment and the training and the pe- people that Turkey had, they needed a lot of help. And even with all the international teams that came in, there was still a lot more that could have been done if we had more resources. Uh, and it was a challenge. Uh, everyone wanted to come and help. Everyone wanted to send resources. I think there was a list, an infographic somewhere I saw online where I think there was close to a hundred countries sent delegations or resources of some sort or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's firefighters from Los Angeles who are hanging out in Turkey right now doing rescues. Uh, so uh, people came from all over. Uh, interestingly enough, when we, from a, I guess a humanistic aspect, when our team landed, uh, we we flew in. We took our own private plane and rented it, and uh, together, you know, we rented it from El Al, and we flew into Turkey. And when we landed, we tried to land in an airport as close to the disaster zone as we could. We didn't want to go to Ankara. Or Istanbul because they're way too far west. Um, we went to a, a town called Gaziantep, which I've never heard of before in my life. Mm-hmm. But they had a working airport. 
me landed there. It was the closest to the rescue scene, and we wouldn't have to drive to the disaster zone because one of the resources that was mostly lacking in, in Turkey in that area after the, the earthquake was gasoline. So we didn't want to have to send a rescue team and then drive them 10 to 12 hours across the country and waste gas. There just wasn't any gas to be had. So we drove as close as we possibly could, rented a bus and a truck to carry the equipment. We brought 10 tons of uh, humanitarian, as uh, our medical aid, medical equipment with us, a little bit of humanitarian aid, but mostly medical equipment uh, with us. And we, we drove right to the, the disaster scene, right for as far as we could. I think it was a two to three hour drive. Um, the team basically started going right away. Uh, and what we, what we saw at the airport was already the most telling thing about this whole mission was that the unity of the world coming together to help Turkey in their time in need. And, and what I mean by that is that there were three planes that landed one after the other in this airport in Gaziantep. The three planes were Israel, Qatar, and Iran. Oh, yeah, this is the photo of the Israeli plane sitting by the Arabian yeah. plane. Exactly. And that was, that was our plane that landed there. And and as we came down off the tarmac, we see the other teams, Qatar and Iran, sitting right there. The, Iran and Israel, the governments are, are not friends. The people are, are people, no matter where they are. No, they um, you know, we've definitely had you know, nothing wrong with any people anywhere in the world. Uh, the unity that came together from just those three planes already seeing each other, knowing the other that we're all there for the same reason to help, you know, people we don't know, people in a different country, but people who need our services, uh, was was absolutely amazing. Did you give each other thumbs up? Was there any interaction? Yeah, yeah, there was nodding, acknowledging, you know, uh, uh, no, with talk, but we speak different languages literally, but um, but there was definitely sort of nodding of the heads and, and uh, uh, you know, not acknowledging that the other one's there and, and wishing each other well and, you know, rescues. We wouldn't you know, take a fair... Fist bumps like uh, President Biden. <laughs> there, there may have been. I, wouldn't, I wasn't present, but uh, yeah. um, it was definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting meeting that took place. That's interesting. Tell us what was the response of the local Turkish uh, peoples uh, to your presence? They saw your little Israeli flags on your uniforms, your outfits. Um, the presence was was amazing. Uh, people were very warm. They were welcoming. They didn't have it they needed to give us, and we didn't ask for anything. That wasn't our point. Um, but they were incredibly thankful and appreciative of what we did, and when we, you know, managed to to pull a rescue and and save somebody from the rubble, um, there was mass screaming of Allahu Akbar. Uh, the God is great in in uh in, in Arabic and Turkish and uh and they I mean Turkey's not an Arab country but they are still uh speaking a language that's very similar and that that phrase goes through all uh I think Islamic countries um and uh people were shouting and joyous and thankful and, and people came up to us and thanked us for saving their neighbors their family members uh you know asking us to come and help them looking in, in a building a little further away, thinking they know where their neighbors might be uh, and trying to locate them. Uh, if they could hear something or knew that someone was alive, uh, then uh, they, they would try and get our, our help with that. And uh, we were obviously uh, more than happy to to be able to do that when and where we could. Uh, like I said, resources were, even though we came with 25 people, the IDF came with 400, uh, and there were many other countries coming with their own groups, 
Um, resources were still very limited for the amount of devastation that was around us. So unfortunately, we weren't able to help everybody. Uh, one of the most challenging things, I think, for us was um, when we were searching through the rubble, it, in order to hear if there was someone asking for help, often you can't hear voices because they're buried far below. Um, so what people were able to do, because it's all the same building that collapsed, they were able to knock on pipes or knock on walls, and we would try and listen for that. Um, so we had to quiet down all the requests for help from the people who were alive, who survived, who were on the street. Even the noise on the street, we had to tell people to be quiet in order to try and listen for those who were surviving and buried underground, because uh, often the noises would be very, very faint. We managed if you have to hear people uh, and get them out. Like I said, we used the drone technology as well. Uh, the IDF brought uh, dogs, like search, search and rescue dogs. Uh, and obviously we went by what the locals told us, where they thought uh, you know, their, their family members would be in this building or in the other building, where in the building their bedroom was, so that we could locate possibly uh, where it would go. Um, and whatever assistance we could in terms of trying to, to get to them, uh, that's what we did. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, two questions. One of them very important about uh, the, these concerning reports that uh, after five, six days, uh, all the Israeli rescue teams had to be evacuated because there were threats from ISIS or other militias or some sort of threats against your life. And uh, the second, what is United Hatzalah still doing in Turkey if people are interested in supporting your efforts through the Christian embassy? Gotcha. Um, okay, so uh, in terms of the threats, um, there's been a kind of like a censorship placed on, on the whole issue. Um, okay. But I can't talk about it too much. There were uh, threats that were not only against the Israeli team, but against rescue teams in general. Mm -hmm. uh, um, after an assessment with uh, the IDF, we made the decision for our team to leave um, early. We were supposed to stay for a total of 10 days. We left after 6 uh, because it was becoming too volatile. Um, a lot of people at the location were very upset uh, at the Turkish government for you know, how they were handling things in terms of uh, when they were going to decide it was going to be a recovery rather than rescue, whether it was going to be uh, uh, how much resources were going to each place, and they, they wanted to get to their loved ones. And the ones the graves were a problem, right? Right. They, once once there was the declaration that that was going to be the way that the government was going to handle things, uh, people got very upset. Uh, in order to try and find their loved ones before the mass grave uh, decision was going to be made or put in place, um, they started lashing out to an extent. Uh and in those cases, it became dangerous for rescue workers to be there. Uh, in some instances, they were forcing a, a mob, surrounded a group of rescue workers and forced them to dig uh, to try and find certain bodies in, in different buildings. Uh, and they weren't doing it from a case of animosity to the rescue workers. They are doing it from a case of they just wanted to find their loved ones. And that's yeah, that's impossible. And I, 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 it became a dangerous element in situation. That, but I know that in Turkey, there's a history also people in some of these re more remote regions that uh, they get kidnapped and held for ransom. It happens in a lot of parts. From the get-go, from the get-go of our mission, we knew that was going to be a possibility, that there was, there was always that overseeing threat because it is southeast Turkey and it's close to the Syrian border. 
Uh, and there is, you know, there are some uh, ISIS supporters in the area uh, and other, um, I guess, groups that are that are, don't look so kindly specifically on on Israel. On Israel, uh, for us, it was an added element of, of danger. Um, and between those two elements, we said it was unsafe for our team to stay, and we pulled our team back. Yeah, um, I know it's a, it, that's a, a popular uh, profession among some of the Bedouin in the sideline too, trying to kidnap people or them for ransom down there. But uh, what are you going to continue doing there? I understand there is some working or well, assessing with uh, yeah, we're assessing with our with our contacts there what the current needs are. Um, most of the search and rescue operations at this point have uh, uh, ceased across the board. We weren't the only country to leave, by the way. The, the German delegation left. The Austrian delegation was uh, held up for a day and weren't able to leave, but they, uh, they're, I think they re restarted their efforts at some point. Um, and there were others. The um, Our team, when we, we left, we basically came back to Israel and we're, we're still currently undergoing reassessment with uh the turkish authorities with the foreign ministry to see if there is a need for additional medical or humanitarian aid um and if that's the case uh then we are uh we have sort of a plan in place to already send a second team um we're waiting to hear back whether it's necessary and whether it's needed and in what capacity um and if that uh, does case then does come of uh you know if that if that need is there then we will we will answer it so if if Israel were to have a uh, an earthquake now, we don't we pray uh, totally against it. But if it were a, a bad earthquake, do you think some of these Turkish rescuers? Very interesting to hear you say they have good rescue teams, good search teams. Uh, you, would you expect some of them to come and volunteer to help here? I, I would hope that people help. Uh, I hope to God. But uh, in a case where there's a disaster here, uh, thankfully, I think Israel has a lot of friends in this field. Uh, you know, Israel is usually one of the first countries to help out a lot of disaster zones around the planet. So I think uh, hopefully we'll we'll be able to receive that help when it's needed. We saw it with the Carmel fires, uh, when the big forest fires that were happening. Years ago. Yes. Well, that people came from all over the countries from Mediterranean, all of them had to help with the fire. Like what I would say with the um, the only the only solution, the only healing that's really available in the case of a of a devastating disaster of a scale of this magnitude is is uh, human unity. It's 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 yeah, people calling together, uniting of forces from around your communities. Uh, and and it's that outpouring of human kindness. Um, you know, to put it in a biblical perspective, it's it's acts of loving kindness of what we call chesed. Um, yes. And it's just, just those acts are really the only uh, the the only uh, treatment, the only healing that we can have from a devastation like this. And we're seeing it now, like I'm seeing it on social media, we're getting messages from people in Turkey on our social media channels saying, "Thank you for saving my neighbor. Thank you for saving." you know people in my community thank you for you know just coming and showing that you care um and that's a huge message for i think the whole world that it's excellent excellent we've been speaking to rafael pock he's the international spokesman 
for United Hatzalah for Israel. It's Israel's uh, fastest, uh, first on the scene, first responders, EMTs, paramedics, others. And uh, it's proven they've been doing this, uh, I tell you, only 16, 17 years, but they've blanketed Israel and have this global reputation for being the fastest first responders out there. And they had a whole team in Turkey, and we've been helping support them. Uh, the funds that are coming in from Christians who are donating towards this are going to provide warm thermal clothing uh, and a lot of medical equipment, oxygen tanks, defibrillators. We have a whole list of stuff that we're helping supply. We're also going to be working with the Jewish agency to help evacuate some of the Jewish communities that are in the worst impacted areas. There was a synagogue, an historic synagogue that got destroyed. Several things that we're doing in this region. But we really thank Raphael for coming and filling us in on the Israeli rescue mission from United Hatzalah, even from the IDF, from command and others. Thank you for your time. All the best in all the work that you do. Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, Great. Okay, that's going to be it for this week's ICEJ weekly webinar. We thank you for joining us for the show on Israel to the Rescue. We'll be back next Thursday at 4 o'clock for our next weekly webinar. Going to have an exciting topic for you then. Uh, also, make sure to join us on Wednesday, next Wednesday, 4 p.m. Israel time for our global prayer gathering. Join Christian leaders from around the world praying for Israel, for this region, and for your own nations. This is David Parsons with the International Christian Embassy saying shalom from Jerusalem.